Okay. Good morning. Not good morning. <laughs> good evening. Good evening, everyone. Um, though, I think I saw Amanda Sue on the call, and maybe it's morning for her. So, um, um, hi, Amanda, calling in from Taiwan. So, um, so um, gosh, so good to see everyone. Um, okay, so let us sit for a bit, um, a decent stretch, about 25 minutes or so, and then we'll talk. Um, and I wanna talk about um, thinking of practice as uh, actually much more having to do with attitude than any kind of techniques or methods that we might use. Um, for those of you who are uh, new, first time on the call, a couple of things just mentioning um, that first of all, though I'm recording, I'm only recording the audio, so don't worry, no video record will be preserved. Um, and um, that you should sit in a way that's comfortable for you. And if you feel uncomfortable um, physically after a while and feel like you need to move, please feel free to. Um, a lot of the people on the call have many years of experience, but if you're relatively new to sitting, it's good not to push it too hard at first. Um, so please don't feel at all um, self-conscious or bad about moving um, if, you, if that's what you want to do. Um, okay. All right, everybody. So please um, just get in a position that's comfortable for you. Sitting upright, if your body can manage that and reclining or lying down flat on your back, if that's what your body needs right now. whatever position you're in, just check to see how your torso is holding itself. And try not to make it um, more rigid, more tight than it needs to be. Can you find a position that's balanced so that the front of your body, chest and belly are free to move? soft and open. Take a few breaths just to feel the physical presence of your body in the space that you're in. Feel the earth, the floor beneath you. Feel the contact that your body's making with whatever is supporting it. And remember that as much as possible, we're interested in sensations, the actual quality of the contact, and not with the idea of the body, not with ideas about sensations. What does the contact actually feel like? Where your legs, your feet, your buttocks are touching something. Is the pressure even throughout the surface area of that contact or are certain spots where your body's touching something else, certain spots bearing more of the weight of your body than other? Can you feel your body settling? onto whatever is supporting its weight? Or do you sense a bit of holding where even though you're sitting on something and whatever you're sitting on can take your weight, you're actually holding yourself up, supporting. Perhaps there's tension in the glutes, in your legs. We are not letting the body or the body's not letting itself fully settle and just notice that the body can't be made to relax, can't be made to settle. 
as something that just happens on its own. But it's interesting to note the ways in which after a long day, we may not actually be prepared to relax, to give up our way. Noticing that is the first step to actually settling. We're in the business of awareness, not in the business of changing how the body holds itself. Let the breath come and go at its own pace and depth, its own rhythm, whatever that rhythm may be. And then slowly, gradually, bring your awareness to the inside of your nose, where you can feel the sensations produced by the passage of air in and out of the body. As you breathe air in, how does it feel as it passes over the soft tissue in your nostrils? And when it leaves your body, how does it feel? Has the temperature of the air changed a bit? Its quality? For the next little bit, just keep your awareness parked in the inside of your nose, feeling the sensations there of the breath. And just letting the awareness deepen naturally. You can't force it. At first, the mind will be racing all over the place. Just let it settle on its own. It's not your job to quiet the mind. The mind can take care of itself. Just keep returning to the breath in the nose and let the mind swirl and swirl and perhaps a little bit more slowly, breath by breath. If you're sometimes in the habit of noting or labeling thoughts, don't worry about that for now. Just when you notice that thoughts have pulled you away, just gently bring your awareness back to the breath without bothering to label or note. Just silent acknowledgement that you're thinking and gently, softly come back to the breath. Sometimes it's thoughts that carry away from the breath and sometimes it's sensations or even full-blown emotions. No matter what it is that pulls you away from the breath, just silently acknowledge that you've lost track of the breath and then come back to the breath without worrying too much about what it is that's pulled you away. Let the emotion, the thought, the sensation be there but don't worry about it too much. Just settle into the breath.
as I often say, see how granular or fine-grained your awareness of the breath can become. Don't settle for an arm's length awareness of the breath, just like, oh, I'm breathing in and out. But what do the sensations of the breath feel like? Moment by moment. Become as intimate as possible with the subtlest shiftings of the sensations in your nose. Each breath fresh, new, not like the one before, not like the one to come, just this breath. What does it feel like? Now, if thoughts or sensations or emotions pull you away from the breath and you lose track of your breathing, note what has pulled you away by saying thinking or feeling or perhaps using an emotion term like fear or anger. Just note briefly, lightly, whatever pulls you away from the breath and then come back to the breath. You only need to concern yourself with thoughts or feelings or emotions that really pull you away, make you lose track of the breath. There can be a whole bunch of other low level, minor thoughts, feelings, emotions passing by. If they don't distract you, don't concern yourself with them. It's just the ones that have enough pull to hook you and carry you away. Sometimes when we follow the breath like this, we can do it with effortfulness, a little straining. If you notice that you're straining, trying to focus intensely on the breath, trying to concentrate, see if you can stay with the breath, but with less effort. There's no need to try too hard, no need to strain. And in fact, the strain will make it harder to actually stay with the breath. 
Can you stay with the breath and yet soften your grip on it? Let some of that efforting drop away. Not even following the breath so much as just letting the breath be there in awareness. At some point during this meditation period, and perhaps it's already happened, a sensation, a feeling, a thought that you find unpleasant will arise. Something that you feel aversion to. Notice how you react when that happens. Does the mind tighten up around that which it does not want? Does the quality of your awareness change? Do you start to practice in a way that feels like it's trying to get rid of that unpleasant, unwanted sensation? It's not about doing it right versus wrong. It's about being curious about what happens in the mind when something that you find unpleasant or difficult arises. Don't try to correct yourself. This is not about right or wrong. It's about curiosity and seeing honestly how you react and how your practice responds when difficult things arise. But once you notice how you respond, don't obsess about it. Don't think about it for too long. Just notice. It's another thing to notice and come back to the breath.
can you see or relate to whatever arises this moment, the next moment, as your path? Can you see it as the path of your practice? If not, you wouldn't be alone. Again, not about being good or right. It's about noticing how we relate to our experience. Where are we open? Where can we accept moment by moment what arises? And where and when do we meet our limit? And what does it feel like to say, no, I don't accept this. I don't want this. Study that feeling with curiosity. That is your path. Observe for a moment the way in which you are being aware of your breath and the thoughts and feelings and sensations that arise. Is that awareness cold and analytical, impersonal? Is there warmth to the awareness, kindness, compassion? curiosity, or impatience, hardness, rigidity? Are you trying to get somewhere? Are you doing something right now? Do you feel the urge to do something with your experience, to work with it? Can you just be in this moment, whatever this moment is like? Again, not about right or wrong, good or bad. It's about honesty. What is going on in us? What is our practice actually like? And now, whatever you found, however you answer the questions I just asked, 
can you regard everything about you and this moment with compassion, with mercy, with softness? Even if you're being hard on yourself, pushing yourself, working through the sitting, can you regard that with mercy and compassion? You deserve it. Okay, everyone, that's good for tonight. Take your time, open your eyes. Please move your body gently at first and take a moment just to reconnect with the space around you and we'll get going in just a minute. Okay, so um, I said that I was gonna speak, um, explore a little bit more fully some comments that I um, posted on the Instagram account that I just started up recently for college students, which some of you are following, but um, I don't think um, most of you are. And so, um, and actually just to get myself back in the flow of these thoughts, I'm just gonna read the two paragraphs that I wrote. Um, so we're all on the same page and so I can sort of pick up the rhythm of my thoughts and take it from there. So um, I, I posted the, the most basic mindfulness instructions. Um, follow the breath and just note that you're thinking when you are and come back to the breath. I mean, that was literally it. Um, and then I wrote a, long caption, which I think is very boomerish of me to write super long captions. I think I'm not supposed to. It's supposed to be much more succinct according to my children. But um, in any case, I can't help but write a lot of words. So um, this is what I wrote. Ultimately, meditation is more about an attitude than it is a technique. The aim of practice isn't to produce a certain effect but to open ourselves to the reality of the present, the only place our life actually happens and where we can therefore feel most truly alive, connected to ourselves and the world around us. You spend so much time, time traveling, thinking about the future, thinking about the past. And as our minds wander through time, we miss out on being truly alive now. 
entire life can slip away like this. Mindfulness is a way to come back to the present. And by doing so, to come back to reality and to life. The present moment doesn't always feel good or pleasant. And that's a big part of the reason why we tend to avoid it. But consider how much the anxiety you feel right now is due to the fact that you spend so much time thinking about the future or the past. So if we can learn to dwell in the present, some of those feelings we're trying to avoid will naturally change, but it takes time. After all, one gets good at what one practices. Having spent so much time, our entire lives, in fact, practicing time traveling, no wonder meditation can feel hard at first, but it does get easier and not just easier, but healing as the suffering we produce by avoiding the present slowly transforms and even dissolves. So think of mindfulness as a technique that's ultimately in the service of an attitude, an openness to life as it is, rather than as a technique meant to produce a certain outcome. We are accustomed to approaching everything we do in a goal-oriented spirit, a classic form of time traveling, if ever there was one, focused on the present, on the future. And so it's unnatural to think of meditation at first as just another technique to achieve a particular goal. It's actually not a way to do anything, but rather a way to be, not getting somewhere else, but at long last, learning how to actually be and to feel at home right where we are. So, um, In a way, I think none of this is news to any of us who are on the call. But I think that it's been interesting how, though I would totally subscribe, I've, this, is, this is how I've always thought about practice. And I've said as much often, how strong the gravitational pull is towards talking about meditation as a technique as a set of practices or methods that we can enact in order to produce certain kinds of effects upon us. Um, and I think it's partly because there's something kind of solid, reassuringly solid about being able to talk about meditation as a technique. Because you can talk about technique. You can talk about the ways in which you can do techniques better. You can make mistakes. You can feel your way into um, you know, certain aspects of it over time with practice, et cetera, all that stuff. It's like, there's something just like, you can, you can, you can get your teeth into it. Um, and as someone talking about practice, I'm speaking about myself, that feels reassuring. Like there's something uh, I can lean on. And I think the technical aspects of practice are important. I don't think it's wrong somehow or a mistake to think about those technical aspects. But I think there is a risk of um, making it seem like meditation is actually a technique when it isn't. And by doing so, I kind of like missing the bigger picture which I'm trying to capture by using this word attitude. Um, Dogen, Ehe Dogen said in his um, brief instructions on Zazen that Zazen is not a meditation technique. Um, uh, 20th century Japanese Zen master, I'm blanking on his name, once said that Zazen is useless. Um, and a lot of Zen teachers have spoken in these kinds of ways, which work against, I think, this impulse that is very natural to want to focus on method. Um, but I think they're actually right that it's, it's not that. Um, when we practice with a genuine spirit, we are actualizing a particular attitude towards life and ourselves. Uh, 
And, um, and that's really what the practice is about. I think it's really important actually to remember that meditation is not necessary for awakening. Um, people have woken up for no reason, you know, um, just walking down the street, you know, um, history is, um, I would say littered, but I'm not sure there are that many, <laughs> has many examples of people who just woke up, you know, um, William Blake, Thomas Traherne. Um, actually, I recently came across a guy who I kind of avoided for a long time because he seemed to me so new agey. Um, and maybe he is, I don't know, but uh, Eckhart Tolle, um, anyway, has this book called The Power of Now, which I had just really just had no interest in for so long. But I picked it up and actually he's another example of a guy who just like woke up. And actually the way he describes it, I'm sort of convinced he's a real deal. There are certain things he says later on in the book, which I, I, um, I don't totally, don't totally subscribe to, but I think he's coming from a real place. You know, I just had a really bad night um, and just felt suicidal, full of dread. And then I think he wanted to basically end his life. I think he'd been very familiar with this kind of experience. And then, um, and then suddenly like he had this thought about, well, like, like some, some, something happened in him where basically that ego just crumbled and he sort of experienced what it's like to live beyond um, this kind of prison house of our, of ourself. Um, I think actually that is in a nutshell, I think for those of you who know Tolle, I think that's the issue. I think he has like a pretty aggressive anti-ego take, which I think actually is like uh, a little bit ultimately ends up being a little dualistic. And um, so in any case, and there are things he says about like getting rid of the ego, fighting the ego, all that stuff that I think um, that I would, I would, I would use a slightly different kind of rhetoric, but in any case, um, but a good example of someone who did nothing just had this experience. I think it's really important to remember that, um, that, you know, we can make a big deal about meditation as if it's like the one true path. And it's not. A lot of different ways that people have come to the truth about who we are. Meditation is one path that a particular, particular cultures have developed to a high level of refinement and passed on generation to generation. Um, but prayer, different kinds of rituals, um, and just blind luck can wake us up to this attitude, which is the primary thing. Um, it's just another way of saying we can fetishize the techniques as if somehow, as long as we follow the techniques, we know we're doing the right thing. But that is actually another way in which we are always looking for some kind of reassurance. You know, that, you know, I mean, I feel okay, but I know I'm doing the right thing, right? You know. Um, and in the end, actually, this practice is about giving up all those reassurances. Right? Um, so the technique, when it works, gets us beyond, I think, our reliance on them and opens us up to a certain kind of attitude. And it's the attitude, again, that is primary. I think also people faced with their own mortality near the end of life can suddenly wake up. They don't need to be sitting, you know, so you, you realize I have like a couple days left. This is it. I have a month left, whatever it may be. And a new kind of attitude towards the time you have now emerges naturally. Um, not for everyone, but for definitely for some, you know, and so, um, and I think the attitude is really about being open to whatever our experience is right now, seeing it as our path, seeing it is as our life, life as it is the only teacher being just this moment, right? Compassion's way. Um, so can we relate to what emerges in practice in our lives with this kind of attitude? Um, 
it's not natural, it's not easy. Um, it's one of the reasons why practice can help because it can get us, you know, a softened to the place where we can be willing, right, to approach our life in this way. Um, prayer, other kinds of things can get us there too. Um, it's an interesting thing is like, I remember vividly these times where I would go on vacation with my family, not my parents' family, my family, my wife, me, my kids. And, you know, um, there, there are a few trips that stand on my memory where I want to really be with them from the very beginning of the day to the end. And um, so therefore I didn't want to take as much time as I usually do to sit. Um, and so, you know, I usually sit three, four times a day. And, um, but I felt like now that's not the right thing to do when I'm, I'm with my family in this way. I wanna, I wanna be fully with them, prioritizing them every moment that we're on these trips. And there's a part of my mind that says, but I'm not sitting, you know, um, and that feels weird. Um, and there's a worry that in fact, I'll kind of like regress. I'll become like more reactive. You know, I'll snap at them. I won't actually be a good dad because I'm not seeing so much, right? But interestingly, it's the opposite. Those times when I've done this have been some of the times when I have felt most open-hearted, most present, because it was the attitude I was taking towards them and the time we were sharing together that was the attitude that actually should infuse every moment of practice, but actually too rarely does. Because of course, when we're sitting, we're mostly thinking that we are doing something good for us that's gonna get us somewhere, right? And that's why, of course, I'd worry about not sitting because it's like, I'm not going for my jog, I'm gonna put on weight. <laughs> so I'm putting on these a spiritual equivalent of that, like, you know, that little extra little ring around my belly or whatever it is. But it was opposite. I never felt more awake more vividly present as I did when I devoted myself fully to their well-being. The selflessness and full presence was almost more powerful than any retreat I'd ever been on, you know? Um, so that's a, like a really down-to-earth example, which I think hopefully, I think a lot of you can relate to of, um, yeah, you know, how attitude is really what it's about. Now, of course, sitting is wonderful and it is a way to cultivate or get us into that kind of attitude. But I think it's important to frame it that way because it's so easy to think of it as a method or technique, you know, um, and to obsess about getting the technique right. Um, and as if, you know, what it is about doing it well, being a good meditator, you don't get any points for being a good meditator, you know? I think the beautiful thing is, uh, actually I read a book once about Zen practice. Um, that actually, Jeremy Levy, who's on this call, recommended to me. It's Peter um, Hershock, he's in the Quantum School of Zen. It's called mm, okay, something about intimacy, like the way of intimacy. Anyway, it's a, it's a great book, I recommend it. And um, I'll find the, the title and send it to you guys. But, you know, he talked about how in a way, um, because actually awakening, see awakening is so interesting, right? It's like, it's actually can't be an experience because like experience is going to be had by selves. So in a way, what we're talking about when we talk about the experience of awakening actually can't be an experience in that sense because it's not something a self is there to experience. Um, it's also not something that we can achieve. You know, it's, it's beyond achievement. It's beyond, beyond any kind of goal oriented, um, activity. And yet Buddhism is not in any way stupid for advocating a lot of sitting. Um, and I think the reason, the way we can reconcile this, the fact that what we're looking for can't be achieved, no practice can take us there. And the fact that this, this tradition seems to be obsessed with this practice is that the practice gives our mind, ourselves, something to do. It gives our, you know, cells, our egos, some kind of, you know, activity 
to, to focus on, to become absorbed in, almost like tricking ourselves so that we can fall into those moments beyond. It's like those moments of grace, you know? And it's like someone else said, um, I, think, I think it was Trungpa who said, you know, enlightenment is an accident. Can't make it happen. Nothing you can do to make it happen. But meditation practice makes you a little bit more accident prone, right? So we're not going to get there by doing this, but by doing this, we can make it more likely. We can fall into this attitude. Um, and I think so, it's just a different ways of thinking about what it is that we're really doing, which is, you know, so imperfectly captured by, you know, pop psychology phrase like lean into discomfort, you know, um, which again, it's like, it's, it makes, it's not wrong. You know, but it's just like they become so trite when they're repeated as often as they are these phrases. And like, what's the deep wisdom encapsulated into that? Or even to say that, you know, this experience, this uncomfortable experience is your path. Like, what does that even mean? Like, okay, that's a little bit stranger. You know, Ezra's language is a little bit stranger than lean into, which has become a little bit diluted, you know. Yet they're saying the similar things, and yet all of them can kind of like lose their edge. And I think one way, for example, the way, like, what is, and can I see this as the path? Here, I'm going to read a bit from Ezra's text that, that, where this, this language is used, right? What is the path? To learn to reside in whatever life presents. To learn to attend to all those things that block the flow of a more open life and to see them as the very path to awakening. Okay, next stanza. And what is the path? Turn away from constantly seeking comfort and from trying to avoid pain right? To open to the willingness to just be in this very moment exactly as it is. Now, I think the language is correct, but in my mind, many times I hear that word path, and what I really hear is obstacle. You know, like, oh, there's this anxiety, or this tension, or this uncomfortable feeling. And yes, my path, path insofar as like, it's something to work through right? It's not actually being open to it just being as it is, right? It's really like, okay, that's the thing to work on. That's why I was asking you guys to attend to the quality of your awareness during the sitting. Was there a kind of energetic, I, I need to work on this feeling, like there's anxiety, I need to work through it, you know, to practice on it as if like we're getting somewhere else, as if, no, it's just that. Because that is not what we want. <laughs> You know, we don't want actually to be open to our life as it is. We are willing to say we're willing to do that if deep down we think it's going to get us somewhere else. If it means like anxiety will be there and then if I be with it, it'll like dissolve and then uh, I can get somewhere else, right? So I'll be with it in a certain way, in the way that this technique has told me to because, you know, I know it'll work on it. Um, switching gears a bit, though on the same overall topic. So um, I've been reading a book um, recently called Untangling Your Anxiety. Um, and uh, it's about two, by two guys who experienced disabling anxiety disorders, um, one of whom then became a, a therapist to, to treat people with anxiety. Um, both have a very big social media presence. Um, and one of them, the guy who became a therapist runs this site, I think it's a Facebook group called The Panic Room, which is a community for people who suffer from severe anxiety. Um, and so anyway, I think if there's one thing that is um, almost universal among the college students who I feel like I'm trying to address with my work at Williams, it's anxiety. You know, and I think it wasn't so much, I did not, I am not a therapist and I'm, my, my intent was not reading it so that I can become an expert and treat people. That would not be cool. It's more like, I did not want to say things that were inadvertently actually harming people, you know? Um, and for example, saying, follow the breath, 
come on, just follow the, you know, because I think that's actually like a classic thing that a mindfulness instructor will tell someone who's suffering from anxiety, just follow the breath, it'll settle you down. Well, if you're having a panic attack, it's actually not going to be very good for you to follow your breath, right? And so, um, so you know, so I, those are the kind of easy mistakes I want to make sure I didn't make as I gave my advice to college students. So that's why I read the book as a kind of prophylactic and stupidity, right? Um, but what was fascinating and unexpected was reading the book and seeing how much of the way they approach anxiety in their work, which I think is not radical. It's, it's, I think they're sharing it more like they know that they didn't have access to this. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people they turn to, even experts didn't quite know what to tell them. And so they just want to share this wisdom with fellow anxiety sufferers. So it's not like, they're basically cognitive behavioral therapy mixed with sort of like, you know, different kinds of awareness practice stuff. And, and, um, and also tested in the crucible of their own experience. And they've both had very different kinds of anxiety. Um, one, you know, sweats, palpitations, um, uh, that kind of stuff. The other one, derealization, depersonalization, like very different sort of manifestations. So they, between them, they, they, they have a lot of shared suffering experience. What was fascinating was reading it and seeing how much of what they said resonated with Zen practice. They, they said all the classic things like, when you're actually having a panic attack, that is not the time to start meditating, you know? Um, and you wanna do parasympathetic activities to settle the nervous system down, but when you're not having, you know, bad episodes, you know, as a way to balance this overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, all that, they, all, that all of that. But other things they said were super resonant. I just wanna focus on two tonight. Um, and one is totally resonates with what I've just been talking about, which is the importance of cognitive reframing. And they said, you know, when you have um, an episode of anxiety, how you frame it cognitively to yourself is hugely important. It's like, oh shit, there it is again, I'm screwed. <laughs> or is it like another opportunity to work on this? You know, anxiety is emerging and now I have another chance to like sort of, sort of work with these sensations, um, be with them, and, and sort of basically accustom my nervous system to understanding that even though I have this reaction, I'm not actually in danger. You know, that the, there's a fire alarm going off in me that doesn't actually match up to the reality of the environment around me. And over time, you know, the brain can learn that. So the reframing, do you frame it as a negative, thing that you want to avoid or as your path, right? As part of what it is that you can work with. Because if you reframe it as a negative thing, one of the most classic things that can make anxiety suffers, and I think this actually goes true, this is true for every negative state that we experience. This is, I think, really generalizable. We start to experience a secondary fear, not just the anxiety, but the fear of the anxiety, not just the anger, but the aversion to the anger, not just whatever emotion it is that we have, you or me, in ourselves that we don't want. And then we have this whole other kind of layer of reactivity that says, not that. Because it's not our path. We don't want it, right? And then it just produces more suffering. And it can even produce a phobia about that very thing. So, um, so seeing our experience, whatever it is our, as our path, seemed to me very resonant of their idea of reframing the language we use. Like we're never gonna solve these issues with thinking they're, and they don't believe that either. And practice definitely doesn't believe that. But how we talk about it to ourselves can matter. And that's, I think, actually one of the biggest reasons why talks are helpful, reading is helpful, why being around other people who practice is helpful. What kind of framework are we putting up around those experiences that cause us to suffer? Are we reinforcing the fact that it's bad, that we don't want it, that we want to get rid of it, that's our enemy? Or are we seeing it as potentially our path? So attitude, right? Attitude is created by the stories we tell about what we're doing. So they matter. I think I 
have avoided Dharma books, Dharma talks for so long after being at the Zen center. Cause I just like, I said, who would, this is so boring. Who wants to hear about practice? You know, um, you know, practice, practice, just practice. But I think what I took for granted is that I lived at a Zen center for three and a half years. I lived and breathed this kind of framework, this framing. And, and I didn't need it to an extent because it was in my bones. But I think I've come to appreciate that even now it's good for me. And for people who don't have access to that kind of like 24 seven immersion in these kind of frameworks, it can be all important to be exposed to productive ways of talking about what we're doing when we practice. So um, the other thing that I want to um, convey from the book is um, basically the way they put it is when you have an anxiety attack, imagine what non not anxious you would do and do it. So when you have an anxiety attack um, and you, your stomach starts to feel bad, so you say, okay, I don't want breakfast. I can't eat. Or like, I'm not going to go do that activity because I need to like recover from this anxiety attack I'm having. They said, no, even if you can only eat a spoonful or two of that cereal, eat it, have breakfast. That's what non-anxious you would do. If you're going to do that email or that go to that place, do it. You're going to maybe feel not so good, but do it. What would non-anxious you do? The more you avoid the things that you don't want to do, the stronger the reactions will become. So it's partly that. But also, this suddenly made me realize, oh my God, this is one of the real benefits of temple life. Because like, think about, we're sitting a lot right? Even on a, a light day, we're sitting two sittings in the morning, two sittings in the evening. Um, each, you know, each sitting is 40, 45 minutes long. And then often most of us are staying another period or two in the day. And this is just on an ordinary work day, right? That we're talking retreats. And this is sort of like every single day of the year. Um, so, you know, you know what comes up when you sit, stuff comes up. But the beautiful thing about temple life is no one actually really cares. <laughs> you know, shit comes up. No, you got to go cook breakfast, go to the garden, you know? Um, no, you go do this or that. You have a job, do it. And actually the teacher I had, and I kind of like, kind of like was irritated about this back then, but now I kind of see the wisdom of this. Didn't actually give a shit what I was going through. You know, he said, okay, you're feeling bad. No big deal. Just, you're feeling angry. Okay, just go do your thing, right? Um, and so it was an embodied, materialized version of, a life that forced me to do what non-anxious me would do. I just went about my life because I had no other choice. And so all the stuff was coming up. I mean, think about it. I went to the Zen center, a totally messed up 18 year old. I had a serious eating disorder. I was like 30, 40 pounds underweight, right? I had just basically gone through two periods of drug rehab. You know, um, I was, was paralyzed with anxiety. Six months later, my eating disorder is gone. And I didn't talk about it once with my teacher because he frankly didn't know what to think about it. When I brought it up, I was like, okay, I'm not talking about that again with him. So it wasn't because I had any talk therapy. It was almost like all this stuff was coming up and my body sort of just learned to just go on. And those buttons, all those triggers in me, all those reactivities just got softened enough so that I still felt stuff. Don't get me wrong it didn't compel me to the self-destructive behaviors that I had been engaged in before I moved there. I'd always been perplexed at how it worked. Like, is it like actually like the awareness of my thinking and I got less attached to my thoughts? And I think that's part of it, but I think that's an idealized picture of how meditation works. I think there's a really embodied dimension of feeling the stuff and just going about one's life because you had stuff to do. So that's just two of many different things that they talk about in this book. And um, uh, Carrie and Jim and Laura, I don't know if Laura's on this call, but you know, the people who are actually like therapists and you know what they're talking about, please, you, at any time, feel free to push back and say, no, no, I, I know where you're getting that and that's totally wrong. But I'm, I'm only saying what I learned from this book that actually resonates with Zen practice. And it's, I just wanna make sure I'm, I'm not giving therapeutic advice. I'm actually just saying, 
Oh, that was interesting because it actually sounds just like this principle of practice. So I just want to be really clear on the limits of what I'm repeating and why I'm picking certain things to say. Um, okay, I'm going to pause there. That was a lot, um, but it's about attitude, reframing, and just even the importance of like, no big deal, you know, going on with one's life as one is feeling. So feel, don't repress, feel and yet move through life still. I think that's huge. Um, I'm going to pause and leave a little space, especially for the actual experts to pipe in and say, mm. <laughs> if you. Hey, Bernie. Hi, Jim. Hi. I just want to say, uh, first of all, you're totally right. Everything you said was correct. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> just to relieve you of that okay, word. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, actually, I didn't okay, want I'll to. Okay, I'll pay you. I'll, I'll Venmo you the money. <laughs> Actually, actually, I didn't want to comment on that as much as um, your story about being with your family. Mm. And I was reminded of a, a Lao Tzu quote, which is a good traveler uh, does not have a set plan and is not intent upon arriving, which I thought was just a wonderful quote. And I think you brought up the idea of how goal-oriented we are and how driven by goals and just that idea of kind of, you know, not being intent on arrival, but being part of the journey. So that was one thought I had. And then the other, getting back to um, this idea of not prescribing like where you're gonna go, but having, um, I think of like intention as being a way of setting aim. Um, and so I wondered your thoughts about that, um, given the idea of trying to be open to the experience as it unfolds, but perhaps before you set out on a journey, like setting your aim and uh, even that idea of leaning in, I find intention to be a form of leaning towards where you wanna go or setting your aim. Um, I realize that could be problematic too, because you could start to uh, get kind of enamored with, you know, that. But I just wondered about like that idea of before you set off to a journey, how you set set that up, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Thank you, Jim. Um, so I think that um, your question sort of highlights why the ethical framework of Buddhism is so important, you know? So when you're talking about intention and aim, um, intention and aim is actually not ever about what this practice will do for us. It's what the practice will enable us to do for others. The problem with ego-centeredness or self-centeredness is that we are not able to fully be present to and generous with others in the way that, um, I think actually naturally we'd want to, except we're so caught up in our own fears and desires and anxiety and all this stuff. Um, and so there is definitely a clear intention to save all beings, right? To, um, later on in Ezra's text, he calls it to, um, to help others like a white bird in the snow, right? Not calling attention to oneself, but being there to serve others. Service, being for others. And so, it's one of the aspects of traditional Buddhism that is, I think, um, stripped away at a high cost from secular mindfulness practice, where it becomes about the individual's mental health or well-being or something like this. Ultimately, I think none of this makes sense, except insofar as it enables us to be more there for others. Um, and so it's also, that is also that a key antidote to the temptation we will naturally feel to get really so we're obsessed with our own feelings, our own inner progress, you know? So, um, and also orients us like when it's like, what would non-anxious you do? What would Bodhisattva you do? It would actually just do what others need, even if you don't feel like you want to do it or you feel, you know, um, it gives you a way to continue acting even if what you're feeling is tight, closed off, you know? Um, 
So I think there's a natural phrase, early phase of practice where we're really thinking a lot about ourselves, you know, really in our own feelings. And then it comes to other words, you know, then it starts to become more outward oriented where you become more interested in just fluidly being what is needed in your world at that time. Um, and then, you know, actually Barry Madge talks about then you can get obsessed with fluidity, being too graceful, like, you know, all, and actually then it becomes like more earthy. Just, just not, don't even worry about that. Just, you know, just, just be there for others. So I, does, I think this, I, I, if I'm understanding, I think this speaks to where you're coming from, right? Oh, absolutely. I was, I was just wondering, like, with that being said, is it egocentric to a degree that's unhelpful to kind of wish oneself well on a journey? And like, if you're setting out on a journey to set things up? I would say no, because I mean, self and other, it's not, you know, like, it's, it's no. Um, and um I was, that, that's a big topic, but I would say absolutely not. And in fact, um, that's, that is an antidote to being a martyr or to being the person who gives oneself up to others at the expense of your own well-being. That is not this path either. You know, if there's no distinction between self and other, then your own well-being must be part of uh, yeah. producing peace in the world. You can't, without you being at peace, how can you actually produce peace for others? You know, so no. I would say, in fact, it's necessary. And especially like once the hard stuff is coming, we need to have compassion for ourselves. Hard practices are key in that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So that's come back and there'll be time for more, more discussion. So, um, so um, wonderful to see you all. And um, yeah. So um, could we sit for half a minute? And just then say, good. okay, awesome, great. Okay, everyone. Um, really, really good to see you all. Really good. Have a wonderful evening and week, and I look forward to seeing some of you next week. Okay, take care. <laughs>